worse than having a baby. I've had three babies, just had my other one. Because I dealt with so much pain from that, I was able to have a natural childbirth because the amount of pain from the sphincter of OD dysfunction is, it's tremendous. It's the worst thing I ever felt in my whole life. Yeah, like they thought that I was like, my mom thought I was dying. It was so bad. She actually had a preacher come to our house and they prayed over me because I couldn't eat. I was losing weight. They kept taking me to the doctor. It was very similar almost to my other condition. Like I kept going to the doctor. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. As a child, Amber had a very rare illness that made the blood vessels in her skin, joints, intestines, and kidneys become inflamed and bleed. Amber was so ill, her mother thought Amber was dying. But Amber survived, got married, had children, and thrived until three days after having her gallbladder removed, when she suddenly started to experience horrendous pain, far worse than the pain of childbirth. Painkillers did a little to stop the abdominal pain Amber was experiencing. And when her blood tests came back normal, doctors suggested Amber was faking it to get pain meds. But the doctors weren't listening to Amber's reports that pain meds didn't help, and sometimes made the horrific pain even worse. In spite of writhing in pain and suffering on the emergency room floor, Amber's pain was often minimized or outright dismissed, and she was labeled a drug seeker. While Amber's illness turned out to be a rare complication of gallbladder surgery, her experience of pain being dismissed, or being accused of lying, or having psychological problems is not rare. In fact, it is hard to find anyone with a complex or rare disease that has not experienced a doctor or nurse accuse them of faking pain or psychologically manifesting illness. It is so common that it's a reflection of the culture of arrogance among healthcare workers, especially physicians. It also explains why so many people with complex and rare diseases have medical PTSD. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. 
You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of an experienced counselor to deal with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. And now here's my interview with Amber Wysocki and a word of warning that some folks may be triggered by Amber's experiences with the healthcare system. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Um, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri where there is very good health care <laughs> and um, I had a normal childhood. I had like normal, um, you know, like common cold, different like illnesses as a child, but nothing or well, I guess um, I did have one event where I had a rare, another rare um, issue called Hanakshonaline Papura. And it was actually a very traumatic event. And um, sometimes they say that disorder can be associated with sphincter vodi dysfunction because um, it has, it causes like, it, it can make you kind of have an irritable bowel syndrome, but they don't they can't say for sure so that is something rare that I had um, as a child but like childhood was very I mean it was just normal typical grew up in Missouri um, went to elementary school junior high high school had my friends and that was it pretty much uh, so you used two medical terms there that probably most people aren't familiar with, the one that you were diagnosed with as a child and the other one that you subsequently got diagnosed with. What were those two terms again? And what are those illnesses? HSP, um, Hanakshonaline Papura, I believe was named from these two or three German doctors who discovered the disease. Uh, it's like a type of uh, vasculitis. So, um, the first symptoms are like, I guess it affects children between the ages of five to eight or something like that. It's not very common, but it causes um, people, to, you start to get these like rashes throughout your body. They call them purpura. And I had um, like, it, it started off with like a, like a little bit of a belly pain and a red rash on my stomach. And I started um telling my mom that my stomach was hurting and she just thought it was like a normal kid thing and then like time kept going and i kept getting worse the rash was spreading throughout my whole body and um, i started developing all types of different inflammatory things uh, i was having like like my hands they swelled like really bad my face swelled my feet my leg like my entire body was pretty much swollen with bruises and um, I had hemorrhoids, 
nonstop diarrhea, nonstop vomiting. Yeah, like they thought that I was like, my mom thought I was dying. It was so bad. She actually had a preacher come to our house and they prayed over me because I couldn't eat. I was losing weight. I, they kept taking me to the doctor. It was very similar almost to my other condition. Like I kept going to the doctor. They couldn't figure out what was going on because back then I, I think they didn't know too much about it. It was like my mom like thought I was lying. Like she's like, there's no way she can be lying, but are you lying? Like, because I had like all these physical symptoms, but then like nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. So eventually anyways, based off of symptoms, um, they figured out that I had this weird, rare childhood illness um, that contributed to a lot of GI issues I have now, like irritable bowel syndrome, which a lot of people have, um, irritable bowel, I think there's irritable bowel syndrome and, syndrome and irritable bowel disorder. Or... So when you were a child, from the time those symptoms started until you finally got a diagnosis, how long was that? About three months. That's a long time. You must have been frightened. Oh yeah, I was, I mean, uh, it was very, I mean, I was terrified. I was, I was scared. And, you know, with that illness, because it took them so long to figure out, I mean, I really never wanted to have to do that ever again. I, it was almost like it gives you a post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, whenever you get another illness and then they think that they don't know what's, they don't know what's going on, then you almost, you have more panic. So in my situation, when I got my second illness, this issue with the sphincter of OD dysfunction, which is, I'll just tell you what that is, I had my gallbladder removed. It's a rare complication of a cholecystectomy or however you say it, cholecystectomy, having your gallbladder removed, you know, which is a pretty common procedure in the United States. I don't know how many thousands of people a year have it, but pretty much everybody in my family has had it removed. We had, I had mine removed by the same surgeon. Six of my family members had theirs removed by, and somehow I ended up with this other rare complication from that surgery where uh, the biliary system or tract doesn't respond as well appropriate to the surgery and at the end they call it the sphincter of Odi, where the bile drains from the liver and pancreas and it shuts off and all of the bile backs up into the pancreas and into the liver and it causes intense um, pain worse than having a baby. I've had three babies, just had my other one May 7th and a month ago. And it is, uh, because I've dealt with so much pain from that, I was able to have a natural childbirth because the amount of pain from the sphincter of Odie dysfunction is like, I mean, it's, the, it's tremendous. It's the worst thing I ever felt in my whole life. Wow, so you had this gallbladder operation. Why did you have your gallbladder removed? Uh, I had my gallbladder removed. It was December 2016. December 24th, 2016, or 23rd. How come? Um, when I was pregnant with my second baby, um, I started having a little bit of like a discomfort in my right uh, rib area. And the doctor's 
told me, oh, you're probably having problems with your gallbladder, go through all these different tests. So I did, and they couldn't find anything. And then around 26 weeks pregnant, I had a big, like what we thought was a gallstone attack. So I went to the hospital, they did an ultrasound and they thought that I had um, a gallstone. At that time, I was living in California. So when I went back to California to see my doctor who had like a degree in nuclear medicine and radiology, he looked at my images and he told me he thought that it was an air bubble. Well, I didn't believe him. And I wanted the surgery because I just couldn't stand this annoying, nagging little pain that was really nothing. Like honestly, compared to what I deal with now, it was nothing. Even that attack was nothing compared to what I deal with. Um, so I flew back to St. Louis where they originally diagnosed me with the gallstone and went to the surgeon where my family had their gallbladder removed. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, I'll agree. I'll, I'll remove it after you are on three months postpartum. So that was December. So that's why I went back and I had it removed. And then how long after the gallbladder removal surgery did the, this other pain come on that's part of the sphincter of? Sphincter of otitis dysfunction. Um, it was about, it was three days, just three days. Yeah, so I was still uh, recovering from that surgery and uh, it was my husband, like that night before, he threw me like a heating pad. I wanted a heating pad because I was like sore and it hit me in my stomach a little bit. And I was like, ah, you know, well, then I went to bed and I woke up and I was like screaming in pain. And we thought it was because he had hit me with the sock. And um, so he took, we went to the hospital. It was weird. It was like a spasm me, like severe it feels like a contraction in your upper right side, like the pain comes and it squeezes really, really tight and it'll hold for like three to four minutes and then it'll let go and then it'll squeeze and then it'll let go. And that's where like the sphincter of OD dysfunction, it's a spasm. And I don't think doctors realize that it's a spasm. So that's, you have that like intermittent pain as it closes, all that bile's backing up, then it opens, then it lets go and you're not in pain and then it tightens and it's just like over and over and over and it can last. I mean, I've heard of people having the attack for days, but the longest I had an attack for was six hours. If you're saying the pain was much more than childbirth, that really gives people an idea of how intense the pain must have been. Oh, yeah, it's, um, I have never laid on a dirty emergency room floor, but the pain is so bad, you cannot sit in a chair, you have to lay on the floor, because there's no position, like, the only thing I have done is, like, on my hands and knees, and, like, bending over, I don't know, like, what it is with the pressure that builds up, but, I mean, the amount of pain, I can't, I'm at, I, like, remember, with so I've, I've had six big attacks and I, and I just remember walking into the hospital and as I'm walking, it makes you vomit. You vomit like exorcist style, like it's nonstop 
vomiting. I mean, there are, I've had attacks where I don't, I only vomit a couple of times. Vomiting, like, and you can't control it at all. Like it just, it's just coming out. Like it's insane and it's yellow. It's like a bile nasty type of a vomit. And I just remember walking up to the, uh, my mom, I've always been with her when I had an attack. She'll drop me off at the front. I walk in, I'm like holding my side. I don't care if people see my stretch marks. I don't care what they see because I'm in so much pain. I just want to get checked in and get into a room. And with the, the that first attack, you think you're going to go into the emergency room and, you know, they're going to get you back there because you're in so much pain and they're going to give you pain medication and you're going to get better, but that's not what happens with this condition. Pain medication does not work for this condition, and I've had people argue with me over it, but it does not. They give you morphine. That's the first thing they want to give you, morphine. Morphine is the worst thing you can give somebody with sphincter voter dysfunction. How come? um, I don't really know what, I mean, that's like one of the things with morphine that people know of that it can cause a sphincter of OD attack. And if they don't know that, I mean, so when they give you that and you do have sphincter of OD, but they don't know, they intensify it. So it makes it, I mean, it's already bad and it gets worse. And when you get into a certain level of pain with this condition, if you don't get it under control in the beginning with the proper medication, um, you're not getting it under control. You're in pain until it ends on its own. That's how it is. So it's a condition that you have to, um, because it affects like your liver and your pancreas so much, you have to start protecting the pancreas and the liver from the beginning because you end up with like a chronic pain if you don't like tailor your diet. You know, I try to, like I just had a baby, so I'm a little overweight now, but I will start to eat clean again, a uh, cleaner, start to exercise. Um, I think getting below a certain body fat percentage actually helps make the attacks less like frequent. And avoid any type of oral medications like you can't take anything so if I get a sinus infection they can't give me oral antibiotics because oral medication stimulates it and it can cause either a full-on attack or it can cause it causes like this that nagging feeling that I felt before I had the surgery that was not my gallbladder it was the sphincter of Odi we just didn't know. So I'll have that nagging feeling and that can last for a couple days. I can take them if I, like if you, you can't take morphine, codeine, like, I mean, pretty much just anything. It's awful for it. So, wow. so, um, so I understand this. So you can't take antibiotics because they'll just make oh, yeah. the situation worse. Um, yes. But you have a bunch so of I, kids running around, and kids are germ machines. How do you? How are you going to? Oh, so what you have to do? Sorry, I get off track a lot. My brain, since I just had this baby, I can't. I have like foggy brain or something. I don't know. <laughs> but um, so I have 
started only taking topical medications so as much as I can or a shot like they can give you a shot of like I don't think all antibiotics I mean I don't know I don't know I'm you can have IV antibiotics whatever you know I don't, I don't think they want to do that but for this condition you have to like they don't realize that, but you can't take things orally. So if I have a sinus infection, I will go to an ENT. They'll give me a bottle and I use a salt solution with a, I get it from a special a compound pharmacy. I mix it in with the solution and then I, I do topical um, rinses for like a sinus infection. Or if you have like womanly issue, like or something like that, you would use like a topical medication. You wouldn't want to take an oral antibiotic. Um, vitamins, I avoided even taking vitamins uh, because that can stimulate a lot of problems. And sometimes it'll, the condition will affect the sphincter or the condition will affect your pancreas. So it's almost like you're living with a chronic pancreatitis as well once you have this condition wow so mm -hmm. uh how did your pregnancy go how did that handle with the whole so the third pregnancy is my only pregnancy i've had with this condition i saw a high-risk doctor because of it i've i did have um once they figured out that i had sphincter body dysfunction based off of my liver enzymes there's three types. There's sphincter body dysfunction type one, two, three. I can't remember the specifics of it, but I know that type one, I mean, for me, I had an, a, an extremely increased um, liver function test, pancreatic enzyme, lip, my lipase was elevated. So I had my um, AST, ALT elevation, ALP a little bit, which those are liver function tests. If you look in like, I think it's your CMP or CBC testing that doctors usually run, you always hear them say CMP, CBC. If you look in there, um, those, those are the ones that you wanna look at for your liver and those were elevated. So like the norm, I believe is up to 30 for those and mine was up to 660. So it was like a dramatic increase even with that being said, I had to advocate for myself because I kept going to the hospital with attacks. They would run my labs. They would say, oh, your labs are normal. There's nothing, They're, we're not finding anything. Finally, my last attack, um, I got into my patient portal and looked, my liver enzymes were a little elevated. So my mom took me to another hospital after one discharged me. They re-ran my labs and so within two hours, it went from being 175, which was abnormal. They just blew it off. From my ACLT was like 175, 200 range to 660 and 440. So um, it's condition I don't think doctors realize. You have to watch the timing of the labs because if you don't test at the right time, you're not gonna see a change in the liver function which is weird, but that's just, that's how I've noticed it with myself. Like I can be completely normal at 12, 13, and then all of a sudden be in the four, 600 range within, I mean, hours. So uh, I don't think they really realize that.
from the time you had the this first attack until the time you got a diagnosis, how long was that? And how I, did they and who figured out what was going on? It took a year. I went to a different hospital. They noticed the elevation. That was St. Anthony's Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. They noticed the elevation and they told me I needed to contact my doctor, my general doctor, Dr. Gage Kelly. And um, he works for Mercy in St. Louis. And he told me about the sphincter body dysfunction and um, recommended I see Dr. Allrich. Um, and he works at Big Mercy in St. Louis, Missouri. So within a week, I ended up having the sphincterotomy. I had more complications. Like it, it, it's a condition where there's complication after complication after complication. And I ended up having pancreatitis for a month. So when you go in to have the sphincterotomy to get this condition fixed, um, you run the risk of having pancreatitis. And if you do have sphincter body dysfunction, you are going to have pancreatitis. Like it's almost known you're going to have pancreatitis because there's been so much damage from the bile backup that anything that messes with your pancreas and when they do the ERCP, which um, I think it's called the electro retrograde pancreatography. I can't remember the full name for it, but it's something they use to look at your liver, pancreas, biliary system, or biliary tract, things like that. Um, they use a dye that they shoot up into the biliary system to see if there's blockages. And um, when they do that, uh, it goes into your pancreas. So it almost is kind of like all that bile damaging it again. And you wake up from the procedure with in severe pain. So you go in normal to have the procedure done because you're not having an attack and you wake up and you're wanting to die again. So I was sick with pancreatitis in the hospital for four days. That night I probably should have, they should, probably should have still kept me because I, I was really, really sick. Um, I went home sick, was trying to recover, took about another two weeks and then I was readmitted again towards the end of the month um, for pancreatitis. And then when I left the hospital that day, I think I was taking um, seven different medications to try to control all of the symptoms I was having. Um, and uh, it was just, it was a really long process to figure out what was affecting me, whether it was food, medications from like there on out. And it took me about I, uh, seven more months. And I had, even after having the sphincterotomy, that was like the longest amount of time I had went without having an attack. But then I did have another attack seven months later. And they gave me um, in the Naval Hospital, Camp Lejeune here in North Carolina. Thankfully, they were really, really good and knew what it was, I guess. We went through like a list of medications. That was my big attack, the six hour attack I had taken. They gave me morphine, uh, lorazepam, uh, omniprazole, a GI cocktail, which is three medications together. They gave me Benadryl. They gave me Haldol. They, they gave me uh, two Bentol shots. I'm a multiple, I mean, probably 10 different medications 
within just a couple of hours of being there because they couldn't get the attack under control. And then finally they talked to a GI doctor and he said, give her um, hyoscyamine, which is the current medication I've used now from that attack. And that was, that attack was August 24th, 2018. And I haven't had an attack since um, using hyoscyamine. As soon as I start to feel an attack come on, if I take that medication, then it will shut it off. And it, and I haven't had an attack since then. Wow. That's yeah. good to hear and know. So it, uh, this medication, it stops the cramping uh, or what does it do physically that stops the pain? So the hyoscyamine, so like if you have GI spasms, they'll give you bental or they give you hyoscyamine, hyoscyamine known as Levsin. These both are antispasmodics. It helps to stop the spasms. Like, you know, cause I was saying like the sphincter will close and open, close and open. So this medication just helps it from like being able to like continue its progress and it shuts it off. Now I did have the sphincterotomy. So I think the sphincterotomy and that medication are what you know, like that combination helps um, stop the attacks. I don't think, I don't know if I didn't have the sphincterotomy, if that medication would work. Right. So uh, this is, sounds like a very rare illness. I'd never heard of it until, you know, I, I came across you. What is the prognosis for you if, if it's known? Oh, so we were talking about my pregnancy and I just saw another GI doctor and what he had told me, he wanted me to have another sphincterotomy because I, I have partial spasms. They're not like the big attacks, but it's like partial and he doesn't want them to build up to full. So I went to go see the endoscopist, but because the condition has that risk of pancreatitis, the second doctor doesn't want me to have any any more ERCPs until there's like evidence within my labs of like pancreatic damage or liver uh, function issues again. Um, I've seen a lot of women who have had like eight to 15 ERCPs, which, you know, and sphincterotomies. And um, I, they have, I mean, it does, it, there's like, I don't even think there's any point because they just use, it's kind of like a lifelong illness. There's some doctors say that it'll eventually fizzle out, but I've seen girls that will like fizzle out for 10 years and then all of a sudden they start having attacks again. So I don't think it really ever goes away. It's kind of like my doctor told me, the one that didn't want to do the surgery, you're going to have to live with the symptoms, that pain that I have is he basically told me worth living with, which in my eyes it's not, because the complications of the ERCP with the pancreatitis, which can potentially turn into chronic pancreatitis, and that's extremely painful. I mean, pancreatitis in general is like, you know, painful. And he said it's not worth me risking that at this time. So there's not really anything I can do right now. I know, I know of other procedures like 
People get Botox injections in the sphincter to help stop the spasms. People get transduodenal sphincteroplasties where it's a complete open abdominal surgery and they go in and they um, have to like sew the sphincter open permanently. People get a ruin Y, I might not be saying it right, gastric bypass to try to um, help with like how I was talking about, if you look up that um, specific gastric bypass surgery, how they reroute your intestines is so that food is not passing past the sphincter of OD. So they're trying to prevent like all that medication, I'm assuming in um, food from passing that area, creating the spasms. I don't think there's really a cure. It's kind of just like a lifelong illness that you're, you have to live with, but I believe because I have done it so far, you can learn to manage to where you can live more comfortably than um, you were living. But if you find out you have sphincter body dysfunction, it's something that you need to take control of like urgently to prevent as much pancreatic and liver function, you know, you know, like damage uh, that you can. And a lot of that is with diet and exercise and, you know, people in America don't like that. If you want your life back at all, or, you know, if you're forced to live with something, you want it to be a slow progression. So your medication is exercise. Like that is your only exercise and diet is your number one factor in trying to control this condition, I believe, personally from my own experience. Well, well it sounds like having one of those attacks and the amount of pain that you describe would be enough yeah motivate anybody to keep up their exercise and healthy eating routine. Yeah, yeah, it really it should be. <laughs> uh, and like one thing, you know, I've noticed a lot of people ask like, oh, well, how do I know I'm having a sphincter of OD attack? Like, I, I've seen a lot of people that think that they have the condition, but like, I hate to say that I don't think that they have it, but I think you know, there are so many other conditions that people could have, but like if you're on Facebook and you're able to take pictures of yourself in the emergency room and you're not being believed by doctors, then you, I hate to say that you probably don't have sphincter dysfunction, but you don't and you don't want it because it's not something that you can sit there and enjoy or patiently wait you know, to see the doctor, it's like an emergency. And whenever people like that go in and they're naming off conditions that they think that they have and they don't know if they have it, whenever, you know, people really have it, that's where, you know, there's a lot of issues with people saying like patients are drug seekers or whatever, because like you haven't, you haven't been diagnosed with anything. You're assuming you have something. And then you're kind of ruining it for the people that really do have the condition and need urgent treatment because, you know, you think you have something and then you're, you're sitting there on your phone. It's kind of aggravating to me. And that's one thing I want to get out there. You're on your phone enjoying, I don't want to say enjoying your 
hospital stay because there's something wrong with you too, I'm sure. But for people with this condition, you cannot, it is physically impossible to sit there. You're either vomiting, like nonstop. I mean, you're, you're begging. I don't care what people think I look like when I'm in there. You're screaming, sweating, vomiting, in pain on the bed, trying to like breathe because you are in so much pain. It is not something like that. I, I wish people, I don't want to say people abuse it. People abuse a condition. And for this condition, I can say pain medication is not your cure. It's antispasmodics. Like I said, I've heard of heart medication being used. I've heard of other different things that's all it's all real medications related to muscle like spasms and not pain so not narcotics or um sorry i don't know if you can hear that <laughs> uh it's not a medication that's fixed by pain medication so i wish people would quit thinking that that is their you know resolution if that makes it worse that actually for people who want to continue to try to consume all of these pain medications, you're making your condition worse because it's bad for your pancreas, it's bad for your liver, and it's bad for um, like the, in general, like digesting that stuff is harsh. I need to baby, you have to baby your like intestines, I guess, with, with this type of a, a problem. Well, yeah, that's a, a really important point that this this particular condition, pain meds are not going to touch it. It's it's a useless endeavor and actually harmful, as you say. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's important that people know that. Not only the general public, but it sounds like physicians need to know that too. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, because it's definitely some people say, oh, like a Dilaudid shot might help me with this attack or whatever. Fentanyl, sure, you know, maybe one attack, it might help, but you need like long-term, if you have this condition, you need, you're there to get fixed. You need long-term success and pain medication, 100% is not what's going to help people with that type of an issue. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. I've been told one one time before I was told <laughs> by a nurse in the emergency room. One month in January, I had an attack at the beginning of the month, and then I had an attack at the end of the month. I had the same nurse for both attacks. She, when I came in for the second attack, and I mean, I'm in so much, I was like, the pain I'm talking about, I was like, I'm dying. She put me in a room. I was in there for, I mean, a long time. I could just tell she was not happy to see me again. I started, I was in so much pain. I had to start making myself vomit because um, I had to like relieve the pressure somehow. And I had remembered from past attacks, it seemed like whenever I vomited, um, the pain would start to ease off. So I just started making myself vomit while I was in the room waiting to see a doctor or somebody and the nurse came back in and she looks at me they, they put me in a psych room a room with a camera and a, a thing and she goes and my mom's like sitting on the bed patting my back because I'm crying because I'm in so much pain 
she, while I'm trying to make myself vomit. And she goes, the nurse comes in and she goes, you can make yourself vomit as many times as you want. I am not going to go any faster. And I was like, I was so mad. And I mean, I didn't ask to be, um, you know, to have this condition. I didn't ask to come back to the hospital. I wasn't asked. I didn't come in there asking for pain medication. I wanted to be fixed. Like I'm saying, fix me, fix me, fix me, not pain medicine, pain medicine, pain medicine, you know. Uh, I, I, cuss, I, I was like, you B-I-T-C-H, I'm not in here because I want drugs. Like, I was like, get the hell out of here. I don't want, I don't want you in my room ever again. And I was like trying, like, I was so mad. I think it all just came out because of like, just all, everything I was dealing with. So she left and I ended up having a different nurse. A guy nurse came in and he took care of me and uh, they gave me Benadryl, which does, that does um, actually kind of help a little bit with spasm, GI spasm. So I think it did help calm it down a little. I was already towards the end of my attack by the time I actually got any help. But that was a time where I think I was thought to be a drug seeker. And I wrote a very, a not so nice Yelp review. <laughs> uh, and I don't know what happened to that nurse. I don't like that. If when you're a nurse and you're there to help people, you're not there to judge people. And so many people judge, like you cannot help what you have, no matter what it is, you can't help it. Nobody asks for anything and it is the rudest thing and you should not be in the healthcare field. You're a doctor, a nurse, or somebody, if you are judgmental, <laughs> that is not the career for you. So that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone. And sometimes I'm not sure if it's the job and the culture of medicine and healthcare that turns them into that, or if they already had that personality heading into it. Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, it's a little bit of socialism as well, you know, like the way we have evolved and everybody's a chatty Cathy and everybody, you know, has an opinion and there's just not as many helpful people in this world, which is unfortunate. And that's what we need for you, like, want to be a nurse because you want to help people like you, we, you can't fix conditions and help people if you're not there to help people. Yes, I have my channel and I didn't, I posted, I need to, I need to make newer videos and update some more information. Um, I haven't done it in a while and more of my story is on there too, like the detail of like, oh, you know, all of the stuff that happened, me not being believed in the emergency room and stuff. I kind of quit posting, but I need to get back on there and make some new videos because I've had a lot I've had a lot of people that it sounds like they actually do have the condition I think with so many people having their gallbladder removed now you know because it's such a quick fix people think um, there are more and more people who it sounds like are actually um, developing this condition and there are not answers for all of these people who are suffering because they're suffering. And no doubt many, many of them are being told it's psychosomatic. It's all in their head. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, uh, so Amber, if folks wanted to find you on your YouTube channel, I missed the name of your YouTube. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I think it's sphincter of OD dysfunction is real. Uh, capital R E A L at the end, I believe, is how I put it on there. Okay, I think people know how to spell sphincter, but OD, how do you spell that? O D D I. O D D I. Right. Well, thank you, Amber, for sharing and uh, mm -hmm. the advocacy work that you're doing, getting your story out there. I'm sure other people will learn from your experience, hopefully not just public, but also healthcare workers. Oh, yeah, I hope, I hope so. Well, thanks to Amber for sharing her story about sphincter of OD dysfunction, a very painful condition, a very rare condition often a complication of gallbladder surgery. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of an experienced counselor to deal with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others.